So if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, another word of welcome, or maybe uh, you've been in and out of town and welcome back, you need to remember and be reminded or invited that we are picking up in a conversation that we've been having for a month now, exploring the first part of our new vision statement, trusting all belong to God. And uh, we started uh, four weeks ago with this sermon series, and the first thing that we have to trust in order to trust that all belong to God is that we, in fact, belong to God. And then the next week, uh, we had to trust that uh, those who are outside of our circles, outside of our families and social circles, even our nationalities and even our religions, a Syrophoenician woman of Greek origin, Greek birth, she belonged to Jesus. And last week, we, uh, we had to wrestle with uh, those in our families, those in our families that we struggle to trust belong to God. We, we wrestled with Joseph and his brothers. And this week, um, we struggle with a really, maybe the, the hardest one of all. What about our enemies? What about those people that we hate? Do we trust that even those folks belong to God? I got to tell you, uh, one of the great privileges and honors of this life, this calling as a Presbyterian minister, are the diverse experiences that I get invited to almost every week, but this week takes the cake. I've been invited in some really diverse places this week, and in, almost in every setting to a T, this question of belonging has come up. How do we belong to one another? What does it mean to belong to one another? I was with Linus and Joyce Wright. They were here at 9.30 this morning. Over at the DISD administration building this past week where they have voted to name that building in honor of Linus's life and legacy. Linus knows what it means to wrestle with belonging. He helped this city integrate in our schools. That's a question that I heard at DISD even this week. What does it mean for us to belong to one another in this city? I was uh, invited to go to the Momentus Institute conference. Momentus is the, the offshoot of the Salesmanship Club. They have a, a, a national conference every year. I got invited to go with some of our Preston Hollow Presbyterian School teachers. The theme of the conference was about belonging. What does it mean to belong with our, our myriad of backgrounds, our diversity of backgrounds? What does it mean for, for teachers to understand that they belong to their students and to create a culture of belonging in a classroom when your students may be knuckleheads? That was me when I was in fourth grade. Sarah might say it is still me. But the inverse is true. What does it mean for students to create a place for even their teachers to belong in these classrooms? Then I got a text message on Wednesday this week from my good friend Richie Butler. Richie's taken me in from the first day I've been here at Preston Hollow, been in Dallas. Richie uh, is the senior pastor of the St. Paul United Methodist Church downtown, right across the street is Booker T. 
Richie texted me this week and he said, Matthew, I want to invite you to St. Paul United Methodist Church on Saturday because, man, I need your support. There's some folk in my community that don't feel like they belong and they live in this city. And they're hurt, they're in pain. And so when I, I want to invite you to St. Paul United Methodist on Saturday at noon. And I want you to listen to the pain of the voices of people's long silence because they don't feel like they belong in this city. They, in fact, feel like they're pawns in this city. And Matthew, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just want you to come and listen. And so yesterday, I went down to St. Paul United Methodist. And I was deeply impacted by voices from folks who feel like they don't belong. What does it mean for us to belong to one another? As Christians, the question then leads us to the hardest question of all. The question that we have to wrestle with, particularly this week. When the news has revealed just how deep and adamant our divisions are. How do we belong to one another as a nation, but further than that? Understanding that belonging to one another doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want to one another. Our actions have consequences, but as Christians, the question is this. As we seek to belong to one another, how do we hold one another accountable to the standards of love and faithfulness? that we read about in scripture that we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ as Christians the question then leads us to the hardest question of all does this standard of love and faithfulness extend even to our enemies That's the question before us this day. That's the question that this text demands that we wrestle with. So we turn to uh, Acts, the book of Acts, the ninth chapter. We're going to read the first 17 verses. It's about a guy named Saul. You may know him as Paul. But it's Paul in his former life. His name's Saul. Listen for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. Meanwhile, Saul was spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled Saul. Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand 
into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he ate and drank nothing. In Damascus there was a certain disciple of Jesus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him a vision. Ananias, and he replied, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed Ananias, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered. Lord, um, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man. People say that he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. And the Lord replied to Ananias, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles. Kings and Israelites, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul. And he said these words. Brother Saul, the Lord sent me Jesus. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here, he sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. You hover here in this very sanctuary, O God. Just as you hovered over the waters of creation, so we ask, O God, that you would reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words, that you would create afresh and anew this very day, that these words might be your word to us here and now, and we ask, O God, that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth, that you would breathe new life into the meditations of all of our hearts, that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have a friend who grew up every summer going to summer camp for two weeks. She loved everything about summer camp. She loved uh, spending time for two weeks with friends that she had made who lived across the country. She loved camp songs. I'm glad someone out there does. <laughs> she loved dances at camp. She loved, loved the late night talks. She loved the friendships that she made in, in the cabin among her bunkmates. She quickly learned, and one of the things she most loved were the friendships at camp. When you made a friendship at camp, you were thick as thieves. And if anybody uh, tried to cross you or your friends at camp, 
It was just known that you weren't messing with one person. You were messing with your friends, too. My friend uh, this week said that she remembers vividly one summer at camp that that, uh, uh, another cabin had become the enemy cabin. And for a week, they traded pranks back and forth until one day, my friend and her cabin snuck into their enemy cabin uh, when they were out swimming one day, and they brought with them into their enemy cabin uh, nair hair removal. Y'all remember that? They brought nair hair removal with them into the enemy cabin, and they unscrewed the tops to all of their enemies, unscrewed the tops of their shampoo. And they put that nair hair removal in every bottle of shampoo. As my friend recounted this story to me this week, she says, well, maybe in looking back, we went a little too far. (laughs) You know, maybe we overstepped the line. (laughs) But I'll tell you this, they learned their lesson. They didn't mess with us another summer at camp. Isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to teach our enemies, the people from the other cabin, don't we want to teach them a lesson? Who do you consider to be your enemy? Who do you consider to be your enemy today? You know, I've walked around uh, this week and I've asked people that question, and many people struggle. Even this week, to name who their enemy is, they say, you know, I haven't really thought of in terms of uh, people as my enemy in a very long time. As adults, we, we don't use that language very often, except maybe for next weekend, you know, Texas OU. <laughs> the language of enemy has gone out of fashion, but whether we name it or not... We regularly think about people as if they are our enemies. In today's terms, enemies are people who threaten our way of life. In a real or a perceived way, enemies are people or groups of people who threaten our safety. Or even worse, who threaten our children's safety. Enemies are people who might destroy everything that we have uh, worked to build. And in this week of deep pain and division, enemies are people that we easily demonize because they vote or believe differently than we do. You know, we may not talk about enemies much anymore, but the Bible sure does. And in our passage this morning, Saul is the quintessential enemy of the early Christian community. Saul has threatened the Christian's way of life, their safety, and their very survival. And he's done this repeatedly. This is not just like a one-time event for Saul. He sort of made it a habit, a way of life. Saul doesn't like Christians. He hates them. He threw believers into jail, right and left, voting for their execution whenever he could. He stormed their meeting places. He bullied them into cursing Jesus. He was a one-man terror, obsessed with obliterating these believing people. 
That's not my color commentary on Saul. These are his literal words from later in the book of Acts. Saul has every intention of getting rid of the Christian community because Saul feels like they are threatening his belief system. Both sides feel threatened by the other. But here's the difference. Saul had all the power. Saul had the power of the Roman Empire that was fully behind him to enact violence against Christians. Any violence that he deemed necessary. Here's the hard thing to accept about the vastness of God's love, even in the moments when Saul was threatening the survival of the early church. Saul's hatred didn't change the fact that Saul belonged to God. Ugh. God didn't write Saul off as a lost cause. God didn't smite Saul. God does something utterly remarkable. I think it's utterly remarkable. God reaches out to Saul and calls him by name. Now, let me just say this as a quick aside. If I were God, I may reach out to Saul and I may call him a name. It wouldn't be his God-given name. I might have a few names for Saul. If I were God, I may just smite Saul. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you, but for me, there are some people in this world that I would like to smite. And I think they deserve it. Aren't you glad that I'm not God? Aren't you glad that you're not God? God's love is too vast. It's what makes God God and us not. It's God's mercy that is all-encompassing, that defines the very nature of who God is. God, instead of smiting Saul, instead of calling him names, God calls Saul his name, knocks Saul down, blinds him for three days. He totally deserved it. Those are small potatoes. He doesn't write Saul off, but rather God reaches out and pulls Saul in. That's the very nature of who God is. Many of us uh, have heard Saul's conversion story. You've probably heard it preached. It's an incredible story, but I think the real hero of this passage, especially in the day and time in which we live, in the week that I had, real hero is Ananias. It's Ananias's faithfulness that I believe speaks to us today. Ananias was one of the people that, was, that Saul was out to kill. Saul had just killed Ananias's friend Stephen, executed him. Ananias knew that Saul was uh, coming to Damascus with imperial authority to arrest anyone in the Christian community. And when Ananias is asked by God to pray, 
Did you hear what the scripture says? He countered God's request. I don't blame him. He's understandably confused and outraged. I get that. I get Ananias' anger and skepticism. I understand that more than I understand his faithfulness. Sometimes it feels like the expansiveness of God's love goes too far. It asks too much of us. But Ananias makes the choice to trust God's love and God's call. And he goes and he prays for Saul. He knocks on his door, he enters, and by the prayer of Ananias, Saul is healed and baptized and welcomed into the community of believers. And in the end, Ananias trusted that even Saul, the one-man terror obsessed with obliterating these believing people, that even he belonged to God. Ananias takes in the very one who wanted to kill him. He takes in the very one who wanted to hurt him and his people. And he heals him. Because God shows him that God is even active in the life of his enemy. That's tough. I mean, that's really hard. That's hard because it calls into question and it challenges everything we think we know about the way the world works. A world that teaches us to view everything in the binary, us and them. Winners and losers, in and out. Because in our world, it's easy to go ahead and write off the other side, cast them aside. They don't count. They don't matter. It challenges everything that we come to know. Because it challenges the very notion of enemies. If God doesn't have enemies, if even Saul, even Saul belongs to God, Does that mean we too belong to the people that we demonize? Don't worry, I won't make you raise your hands on that. Do they belong to us? Oh. You know, when we hear uh, stories of this kind of truth, this expansiveness of God's love, we tend to remember them. We remember them in scripture, preachers love to preach on them, but when we hear and encounter them in the world, we tend to remember. They tend to take the world by storm because of their power and their sense of hope. It's certainly the case for a story that broke and took national attention back in the 1990s. I was alive then. And you're still there, it's good. It's a story about a man named Larry Trapp. You may remember this story, but it's one that 
we should all remember, especially this day. Larry Trapp was the Grand Dragon of the Nebraska Ku Klux Klan. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Larry Trapp took great joy in harassing Jewish folks. He took great pleasure in harassing immigrants and people of color. Larry uh, made it his custom every single week to pick up the phone and make harassing phone calls to Jewish folks and to people of color and to leave long, hate-filled voicemails on their answering machines. So when a new rabbi arrived, Michael Weisner and his family, they immediately became the target of Larry Trapp's hatred. They had just moved into the neighborhood when they received a, a voicemail on their answering machine. You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. The KKK is watching you and your family, scum. It caused the Wisners to get a security system, understandably. And then one day over dinner, it occurred to them that they were obsessing over these voicemails, this hate mail that Larry Trapp was sending them. So Michael Wisner, Rabbi Michael Wisner's wife, Julie, said to them over dinner, what are we to do with this Larry Trapp and this racist? And Michael said, I don't know. She said, we could do the unconventional thing. We could try loving him. And Michael said, what do you mean we could try loving him? She said, we could answer the phone when he calls. So every time that Larry Trapp made a phone call from that point forward, the Wisners returned it. If they weren't home and he left a voicemail, they always returned his call, and Michael Wisner began leaving him really long voicemails. But this was long before the day of cell phones. In order to leave a, a message on the answering machine, Michael Wisner would have to listen to 10 full minutes of hateful rhetoric before the sound of the tone beeped. But Michael would wait 10 full minutes and he would leave messages like this, Larry, you gotta be tired of carrying around that much hate, man. No one should have to carry all that. Larry, you know there's a different way to, to live in this world. You know that there's a way uh, into love Several months in, Michael uh, had made this phone call. He was into one of his uh, long voicemails when something strange occurred. Larry Trapp picked up the telephone. And they began talking, and Michael learned that Larry was a diabetic. Severe diabetic. In fact, he had had to have both of his legs amputated. He was in a wheelchair bound to this tiny apartment, and he lived alone where he lived alone for many years. And what Michael calls maybe not the easiest conversation of his life, he said at the end of our, that first phone call when we actually were both on the phone I said hey Larry it must be really hard for you man getting out you don't have legs you're in a wheelchair it must be really hard for you getting out 
getting groceries. Can I go pick up groceries and drop them off by your apartment? Larry Trapp said, no, I got that covered, but thank you for asking. Larry Trapp points to that phone call and he said something changed in him that day. He got in his wheelchair and he went back to his room and he sat there and he said, for the first time in my life, someone took interest in me and asked how they could care for me. And the longer I sat there thinking about what Michael had said to me on the phone, can I get your groceries? It occurred to me how lonely I was. A month later, Larry picked up the phone and called the Wisners. Julie answered. Julie, this is uh, Larry Trapp. I wondered if Michael's there. He is. Can you hang on one second? Hey, Larry, it's Michael. Uh, what's going on? Michael, when you asked me to, uh, if, I could, if you could bring groceries, something changed in me. I, 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 I got to tell you, man, I've been thinking about this every day since our call. I can't do it anymore. What do you mean, Larry? I can't go on living like this. Larry, what do you mean? I can't go on carrying the weight of hatred any longer. I want to live my life in a different way. I wondered if you and Julie would be willing to come to my house and meet me. Michael said, I'll talk to her and I'll call you back. Michael and Julie talked about it and they called Larry and said yeah we'd love to come over this afternoon their 16 year old son apparently was the only adult who lived in the house because he thought it was a terrible idea <laughs> their son said what do you mean you're going to go to Larry Trapp's house I've listened to those voicemails what if it's a trap and he hurts you Michael and Julie said, I don't know, we got to go. And Julie said, you know, I got I to gotta bring him something. I got to bring him a peace offering. So she scoured the house and she was led to the jewelry box that was right there in their bedroom. She, she picked out this old silver ring that she had given Michael years before. She stuffed it in her pocket. She wrote Larry Trapp's address on a sticky note, put it on the kitchen counter, said to her son, if we're not back in four hours, call the police. This is the address. They got in the car, they knocked on the door, and Larry Trapp wheeled himself there. And Michael Wisner reached out his hand. And Larry Trapp put his hand on top of Michael's, and they shook hands. And Larry looked down. And he saw it. It's like the scales fell from his eyes. He was wearing his grand dragon ring, shaking the rabbi's hand. And he said, Michael, I can't do it, man. He took his rings off and he put them right on the counter. He said, I can't wear those rings anymore. I can't do this way of life. I, I, I need you to talk to me. And Julie said, you can't wear those rings anymore, but it's funny. I brought you this old ring of Michael's. Will you wear this one? They were in that house for hours. Their son didn't have to call the police. They called him and said everything was okay. But they packed up Larry Trapp's apartment. They took his grand dragon robe. They took all of the hateful books out of the closet. They scoured the extra robes that were there for the recruits that Larry Trapp was going to recruit into the KKK. They took all of the paraphernalia and they loaded it up and they put it in the rabbi's car and they drove away. 
that Michael and Julie started picking up Larry's groceries every week. On Saturdays, the whole family now, the son was thrilled about this, they went over to Larry Trapp's house and cleaned. <laughs> Several months after that, uh, Larry learned from his doctor his diabetes had reached a certain point and he only had a year to live. So uh, one Saturday morning, instead of cleaning, the Wisners drove over and they packed up the rest of Larry's apartment and they loaded it into the rabbi's car and they drove it back to their house and Larry Trapp moved in upstairs. Swear to God, true story. One of the next nights they were uh, at the dinner table, they were about to say the hamotzi, the, the blessing over the food. Something changed in Larry. He said it was like an electrical current went through his hands when they held hands. And he said, I want to know a love like that. Where does that kind of promise come from? Michael Wisner said, I'd love to open the Torah with you sometime. Larry Trapp converted to Judaism. After his conversion, uh, folks in the African-American community would call the Wisers all the time and say, what are you doing to that man in that house? Because Larry Trapp is calling us all the time now. But he's calling to apologize. He's asking for forgiveness. He's telling us that he found a different way to live this life. Larry Trapp died 10 months after he moved into the Wisner's house. They had his memorial service at the temple at the synagogue. Several members from the African-American community volunteered to give his eulogy. They told stories about the man they once knew and the man that they had come to know. Rabbi Michael Wisner preached his memorial service homily and he never called Larry Larry instead he called him brother Larry the whole time two of the sweetest words that Lincoln Nebraska had ever heard brother Larry Trapp Friends, who do you feel like threatens your way of life and your very belief system? Who's on the other side? Who can you not imagine is not included in the vastness of God's love and mercy? For my dear friends, even in these divided times, can you begin to trust, just begin, that those people belong to God? 
and that God is even at work in their life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. World without end. Amen.